Hello everyone, welcome back to the What's Happening Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Murray, and today we're going to be talking about how mental health was looked at in the 70s. Now this is a part two to my last episode. My last episode was talking about how mental health was looked at in the 60s. We learned a lot. We learned about there was a trio of guys that came up with a scientific biological basis for a lot of the mental health conditions conditions and disorders that are prevalent in today's day and age. And we also learned about Arthur Beck and his cognitive behavioral therapy and how that is probably one of the most popular therapy methods today. Now, some ideas from the 60s carried over to the 70s. In the last episode, we talked about deinstitutionalization. Just forgive all of that. You know, people wanting, you know, people with um, patients with mental health conditions to be free or to get better care and treatment elsewhere in community funded funded centers and so forth. We're going to take a look at if if deinstitutionalization changed much in the 70s or if it was pretty much in the same status. So my first piece of information was tensions and rivalries within the mental health professions, identity and interest group politics, the difficulties of distinguishing the respective ethological roles of such elements, the policy that led to the release of most of the nation's mentally ill patients from the hospital to the community is now widely regarded as a major failure. In the last episode, we learned about how that was a failure as well and how they didn't do really what they were supposed to do in order for this to succeed and they didn't have you know the information about all of about treatments and you know that how the treatments were affecting the patients and so forth sweeping critiques of this policy notably the recent report of the American Psychiatric Association have spread the blame everywhere we're gonna get into what the American Psychiatric Association is also known as the APA. The mission of the APA is to promote the highest quality care for individuals with with mental disorders and substance related disorders and their families, to promote psychiatric education and research. The APA is also the largest psychiatric association in the world with more than 38,000 physician members specializing in diagnosis, treatment, prevention, and research of mental illness. So that is a lot of people that is dedicated to actually trying to help and actually looking into treatments and prevention for substance-related abuse and all of those things because all of those things are a pretty big issue in today's day and age. Deinstitutionalization was still in a state of limbo or failure as the psychiatric systems blamed a lot of other reasons for deinstitutionalization not working. People weren't getting the help that they really needed at the end of the day. It was just really a sad state of affairs, I think. And this is, I didn't pull this from anywhere. This is just my thoughts. I actually do think that it was a pretty sad state of affairs because I think by the way I'm reading it, I might be reading into it the wrong way, but the way that I'm interpreting it is that they had a chance 
to actually help people and to actually provide some sort of care. It just didn't happen, you know, based on they weren't ready, they weren't equipped. And maybe it is also because there wasn't that much information known nowadays, you know, like nowadays, back then. Because you gotta think, we're gonna get into some information that's pretty, to me, pretty staggering uh, later in the episode. This is one thing that I always thought of when I thought of mental health in the 70s and the 60s. I always thought of stigmas and certain types of stigmas. I thought it was a thing where it was really looked down upon, like mental health, the ideas of mental health, promotion of mental health. I just thought it was really looked down upon based on family members that I had that grew up in the 70s and maybe it was just in their family and my family, especially my mom's family. Feelings and everything weren't really talked about and it wasn't really a thing where you could sit down and talk about this is what's going on, this is what's happening. That is also sad because it's forcing people, you know, to keep all of that stuff in which also leads to, you know, it could lead to depression, anxiety, and things of that nature. I always thought of the stigma. As far as I know, through research, I found that at the time, um, there's three types of stigmas. But the most stigma that people talk about are social stigmas. We're gonna, we're gonna get into it. There was stigma surrounding treatments. Now, I pulled this information from a source that will be listed in the description. Anybody could pull these sources up and read through them. In quotes, it says, we often stigmatize many of our treatments. Electroconvulsive therapy is effective, if not life-saving. I'm just going to stop it right there. Electric, electroconvulsive therapy is electric electroshock. It's like, you know, what you think of pretty much. Or like, I always thought it was very cruel. I always thought it was something that you should never subject humans to because we're going to get into what it actually does and what they're actually doing to your brain as the shock waves are going through it. But it's, you know, apparently some people only had reactions to this type of treatment. The stigma surrounding this therapy made it to where patients that needed it didn't want to go through it. But here's the thing, like, I understand in certain aspects if, you know, this was the only therapy that quote-unquote worked. We're going to get into why it might have worked, and it was more damaging to the individual than actually life-saving, in my opinion. Now, I don't have the science the science background to say, like, or the medical background to say, like, yeah, that's, it doesn't work, but it's just a cruel way. Okay, so electroconvulsive therapy, ECT for short, is a treatment that involves sending an electric current through your brain. This causes a brief surge of electrical activity within your brain, also known as a seizure. The aim is to relieve severe symptoms of some mental health problems. So basically, they're seizing your brain, pretty much. We're going to get into the side effects, the risks of general anesthesia, which I did not know that people actually go under for this, which is needed for ECT or similar to the risks when anesthesia is used for other procedures such as minor surgeries. But the most common side effects of ECT on the day of treatment include nausea, headache, fatigue, confusion, and slight memory loss, which may last minutes to hours. That, to me, is pretty cool. Like, it's pretty cool to subject people to that. I mean, I know that there's a bunch of medications out nowadays, and even back then, that had side effects such as nausea, you know, weight gain, you know, you know those commercials that uh, the side effects are like red 
read really fast. I wouldn't want to go through this every time. Like, I have to go through this type of therapy. Like, like no wonder why people did not want to go through it. Like, it wasn't that it was stigmatized. It's that, you know, like, I don't know. These risks must be balanced with the consequences of ineffectively treating severe psychiatric disorders. So, basically, you still have to deal with your disorder on top of this, which in some cases, I have read that it actually does the opposite. It makes things worse. Dude, because due to this, there also may be no memory of events before and after treatment. Permanent gaps in memory are also possible. It's not really treating anything. It's pretty much just getting rid of, like, it's pretty much just getting rid of the memories. But honestly, I know how I feel about it. It's cruel. I think it's unusual punishment for people to subject people to that and expect them to be okay with it and their families to just go along with it. I don't know really how I feel about it at the end of the day. I do think it is cruel, but I, I mean, on the science base of it, I don't know. I never really did look at it as a good thing, but maybe that's what they mean, but I always viewed it as inhumane and ineffective to do that or to, to subject human beings to such treatments. This one, I did not know about, but the second stigma is surrounding other physicians. Many physicians develop skewed views on uh, psychiatry because in medical school, there are psychiatry rotations were in state hospitals or veteran hospitals. In these veteran hospitals and state hospitals, they have a mindset or a belief that all psychiatric illnesses were chronic and that psychiatry has very little to offer patients because at that time, it was either a certain type of therapy or it was some medication and they really didn't know science-wise, what was causing these issues. So it's like they were fixing everything, but the actual, like, issue itself, which is still, uh, could be an issue, but I think science is a lot more advanced. Today, there's a lot more things out there. The final, uh, stigma is what I was referring to earlier, was the social stigma. A lot of people assumed all people who were not mentally well had a stigma for being dangerous. This was a thing back then, I guess. Or that, you know, somebody was quote-unquote crazy and, you know, and they just weren't treated that well socially and in the public. Uh, but get this, only 3% of the mentally ill at that time that were in these facilities were actually dangerous. So I don't know where that stigma came from. Maybe somebody can elaborate. Somebody can uh, get a hold of me to elaborate. But treatments uh, really remain the same um, from the 60s into the 70s, but there was treatment of mental disorders the 70s was a decade of increasing refinement of existing treatments. There is increasing focus on the negative effects of various treatments such as deinstitutionalization and a stronger scientific basis for some treatments emerged. One of these treatments was lithium which is a mood stabilizing medicine used to treat certain mental illnesses such as bipolar disorder and others. Um, the short term side effects of lithium can include nausea, muscle weakness, or a dazed feeling. A long-term side effect can be weight gain. I've heard of lithium from certain YouTubers that I have watched and uh, that are in, that are, that talked about, like, addiction and recovery and so forth. So I'm very well aware of lithium and what it did and what it was. 
and what it is, how it could be prescribed to people. The one thing, the one thing that was very new at this time, which I find these to be the most interested, a new method of therapy during the 1970s emerged. So in the 60s, there was cognitive behavior therapy from Aaron Beck, and in the 70s, there's dialectical behavior therapy by Marsha Linhan. At that time, assuming her last name is pronounced Linhan, um, I'm probably butchering it. Dialectical Behavior Therapy, DBT. So we got CBT and DBT. It's a type of talk therapy for people who experience emotions very intensely. It's a common therapy for people with borderline personality disorder, but therapists provide it for other mental health conditions as well. Dialectical means combining opposite ideas. DBT focuses on helping people accept the reality of their lives and their behaviors, as well as helping them learn to change their lives, including their unhelpful behaviors. To me, that is very, very interesting because it's almost like CBT, but I think DBT, as stated, like it's for people who experience emotions very intensely. Maybe it's for people who also experience like a swing of emotions. You know, you know what I mean? Because like some people experience that. Like with me, like I'm just gonna take me for an example. I have not really been diagnosed with anything, but I've had mental health struggles. I don't know, like there's times where everything is going good. I'm very happy, very happy where it's a joyous time. It's a very, very good time for me. And that'll last for like weeks, maybe months. I will get really sad, really depressed. And that will also last weeks and months. And it's like, it's like a swing of emotions you know what I mean but that's how I feel like most of the time and I need to probably get that checked out (laughs) but Marsha Linhan was a professor or uh, is a professor of psychology in the department of psychology at the University of Washington and is director emeritus of the behavioral research and therapy clinics a consortium of research projects developing new treatments and evaluating their their efficiency for severely disordered and multi-diagnostic, you know, um, I'm not going to say, but, you know, people who think of harming themselves, you know, and have that behavior and drug abuse and borderline personality disorder. But what I find to be very cool is she came up with this with DBT for from for people with uh, borderline personality disorder. As I researched, she has suffered from borderline personality disorder, which I find them I find to be uh, the most happy ending to a story. And Marsha Linhan is still alive today she's 80 90 years old it would be very very cool to just hear the knowledge to hear the experience of basically coming up with a therapy that back then that is still widely accepted still widely used and widely available today with people that fit the criteria but we're gonna move on to and this is what i find to be interesting and this was uh the most diagnosed mental disorder in the set in the 1970s because i wanted to 
know out of all of the different mental disorders, what was the one that was like number one at that time? Treatment statistics during the 70s reflected the growing interest in depression. Depression was growing. Now get this, before that, it was anxiety. Or yeah, it was anxiety. Basically by 1975, the 18 million diagnosis of depression surpassed the 13 million diagnosis of anxiety. That is actually crazy because I wonder what caused, that's what I always wonder, like what caused the uptick? Was it the way it was, was it like life at that point in time? Was it society? Like what contributed to the rise in depression and anxiety and these sort of, these sort of mental disorders? That's what I really want to get into and really want to know at the end of the day. If I get any any answers to any of this stuff, that is literally what I would want what I would want to know. Now, I tried to find information for this question. And the question was what was the rate of patients in psychiatric facilities in the 70s? So, I just wanted to know how many people. But, you know, I should have tried to pick a facility that was around here in, in Ohio back then and try to go for that. But the only information I was really able to find is that there was 340 beds for every 100,000 patients and that it was overcrowded in terms of patients plus it was understaffed. So you got to think about that. 340 beds for every 100,000 people. And so the, what were the rest of the people supposed to do? Like sleep on the floor? Like what Like what did, what were they supposed to do? Like in instances like that. And plus, you know, there wasn't that much staffing going on because there was a huge stigma around psychiatry uh, or psychiatrists at the time and and a lot of them probably didn't want nothing to do with that to be honest but anyway I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast you know um I've actually been having really uh having a lot of fun recording these podcast episodes researching this stuff and just doing this like I find this to be like my calm time in terms of what I really just want to do you know to be honest you know make sure to follow the podcast on ig which is what's happening bm that is the social media that i am the most active on i also have an x or a twitter uh, that will be linked in the description and i would also really appreciate it if you guys could rate and download the podcast episodes and share it with your friends and family it really means a lot and helps with the podcast i'll catch you guys next time